Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein A Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R. We've got an hour of science for you. It's one week before the Radiothon, which is pretty exciting. So we're going to try and jam this show filled with as much science as we possibly can. In the studio with me now is Chris KP. Good morning, sir. Hello. How are you this day? I'm good. Uh, we are sadly uh, not uh, with anyone else today. <laughs> All, all of our colleagues have uh, run and skipped uh, on to other things. You know what's funny about that? And, and th- again, this is terrible radio, but um, as you were saying that, we both looked across the studio with an empty chair. <laughs> empty chair. <laughs> well, Dr. Lauren is away today, unfortunately, but she will be back next uh, week for Radiothon, which Excellent. is great. And um, no one else <laughs> was willing to spend time with you and I, so that's, you know. Well, that's a problem with having a team that know us so well. Uh, this is this <laughs> yeah. a known risk. So we will have to put up with that. But look, we do have a couple of great guests coming on the show today, folks. We've got uh, one, an old colleague of mine from many, many years ago, actually, um, coming in to talk about science and the connection with music, which will be really cool, um, especially for Chris KP because he's a musician. Yeah. And I'm a wannabe. I mean, I, I want to <laughs> be a musician. I'm just not, um, which is sad. And uh, also we'll be talking to a uh, professor from Perth, about planetary collisions and all the uh, things that happen there, including earthquakes on other bodies and how we go about detecting mm, them. Cool. cool. It's very cool stuff. Anyway, we're going to start off with some news. Chris KP, over to you. Uh, look, I wanted to – this is a thing that's popped up in my uh, – over many years has popped up in my consciousness at least, the idea of uh, microbe or bacteria-based uh, batteries. It's, mm. it's a concept, and it's a cool concept because, A, there's something uh, – you know, it's a different source of energy, if you like, and it uses, you know, a bit, a bit of nature rather than us trying to engineer everything ourselves. The problem is there's all kinds of inherent problems with doing this. It doesn't mean we can't do it. There are just challenges. And one of the bacteria that has been investigated previously as a possible source of um, focused energy, if you like, is a bacteria known as geobacter sulfurreducens. Hello. Which I'll probably refer to as the bacteria from now on. But <laughs> anyway. Yep. Um, and it's been, it's been known to produce electricity. So mm. it's been one of the key candidates when you want to make microbial your batteries or that kind of thing, you go, you get this guy operating because it can actually generate electricity. The problem is, though, that it's still a living bacteria. So mm. for it to do anything, especially do anything as uh, as us-centred as producing electricity, you need to keep it in, you know, good nick. You've got to take care of it. And in particular, you have to feed it. So if you think about, uh, you know, a traditional battery, once you've got it, you just use it. Maybe you recharge it if it's a yeah. rechargeable yeah. one, but that's it. With these guys, you've got to feed them and take care of them. Interesting. Hmm. Interestingly, though, what some research that the University of Massachusetts Amherst have done is sort of not really use the bacteria but kind of have used it. It's produced a biofilm which can produce as much, if not more, than a compar- you know, comparatively sized battery, but it doesn't need to be fed because it's not the bacteria. It's the biofilm. Oh, wow. It's dead. <laughs> Mm. So it doesn't actually have any livingness about it, so it's easier to maintain. So how does it produce electricity? Well, it does it by harnessing the power of evaporation. And if you think about it, you know, the reason we sweat is because the act of evaporation cools us down. So there is an energy transfer associated with evaporation, and we are always a bit wet. (laughs) Don't (laughs) think about it too much, but we're always a bit A little bit clammy. (laughs) Yeah, it depends where you live, but... (laughs) 
and which part of you you're looking at. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah we're a little true. bit damp. So the idea of getting it, this is we go, they go, okay, here's the biofilm. Yep. Um, which in the right, you know, framework and infrastructure will produce, uh, will, will harness evaporation to produce an electrical current. All you need to do is whack that onto your skin somewhere and then you can, you've got the electricity to be tapped into something else. They're talking about putting it in something adhesive. So it's a patch essentially. Right. Yep. They referred to like a band aid, but I'm like, I feel like that's. I mean, it's going to be a sticky thing on your skin. That's yeah, about yeah, the yeah. only bit we've got. Yep. Um, you just need to perspire generally, and they reckon that it could be it could power, you know, personal electronic devices, uh, yeah. medical devices. How right. cool would that be? Um, yeah, and it's basically using a, a biofilm <laughs> produced by bacteria. Yeah, I think uh, you know my phones are on a bit low. <laughs> I'm going to have to go for a walk <laughs> so I can get it to charge up. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that would be um, – that's an interesting concept. Actually, that's an interesting point because, you know, so I, I have – I know I'm not alone in this, right, and I don't want to make it about me, but I have really bad ears for earbuds. Like, oh, yeah. They never fit my ears. Yeah, they never work for me. And I'm wondering if there's going to be people who are the same and going, I just don't sweat enough. Oh, no, I've yeah. got to put it on the inside of my left thigh. It's the only place I can get enough power. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Or, or you, you find yourself walking into the sauna at the local <laughs> fully closed. It's, it's just, not weird. Dude, I'm just I'm charging my charge. phone. <laughs> That's uh, that's what they're going to do. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. it's an interesting concept, and I think we've we've talked about this um, over the years. Various options of this, where where it's either chemical or it's the amount of heat our bodies produce, or the motion that we produce yes. when we move. Yes. Um, but this is different again. But also, uh, I think it's interesting that it's it's taking um, almost a, a biological product or structure yep. rather than the thing. I mean, let's face it. You know, I, we don't wear. Um, you know, actual furry animals. <laughs> We've never done that. Right, no, yeah. no one's put on a lion, yep. but it's fur. Now that for yeah, you know, for millennia, is lovely and warm mm. and delightful. Um, even plants. We don't use. We don't need a whole plant. We don't need a, need a you know an entire necessarily a whole plant. Sometimes you do. Um, when you, you know, we throw out the apple core. So yeah, you know, yeah. we're eating the bits we need. We use the bits we need. So this is just another case of going, yeah, this is made a biofilm for us. We don't need the whole bacteria for it. Yeah, we just um, need but the aftermath. It, it's mm. incredibly easy to produce, though. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, biofilms grow everywhere, don't they? Uh-huh. We see them. They're great. Okay. Uh, I've got a piece of news that I've been holding on to, <laughs> saving for a rainy day. And you'll understand why I haven't rushed out to put this news <laughs> okay. out as I go through it. But suffice to say, I've been I had this in my little bag for um, uh, since 2021. Oh, you have been storing it. And um, I call it the rainy day news piece. And for those of you who are general listeners of the show, you'll realize that every week we have a few, uh, you know, co-hosts come in, everyone brings in some news. On occasion, I get to do news. Mm, yes, <laughs> Generally yes. speaking, uh, I, I sort of hand that over to my colleagues. Um, but on occasion, when someone's away, it gives me an opportunity to do a little bit of news myself. And this piece of news is something that, look, I find this really spectacular. And I, I have to say, I'm going to be geeking out over space over the next few weeks. <laughs> and I'll tell you about that more later. But it's just going to happen. You're just going to have to deal with it. And, you know, it's part of life. <laughs> but um, a, a couple of years, well, just over a year ago now, the, um, the Hubble Space Telescope was looking at a particular region in the space, very distant region of the space. And they picked up um, a, an interesting field of view where essentially there were four stars in this field of view and, well, a lot more than that, but let's... Four they cared four, about. Four they cared about. And just imagine these stars being around um, points on a circle. So, you know, uh-huh. you get, say, say, say we're looking at the clock uh-huh. and there might be one at 3 o'clock, one at, you know, 4.30, one at 6, and one at, say, 10. Sure. And the, that's where they saw these stars. Now, the, the interesting thing is, is in the middle of the clock or in the middle of that region is this supermassive object, right? Mm-hmm. And what what's happened is that these stars are actually one star on the other side of this object 
far, far away. But the light has to go around this object to get to us. Now, so why do we see four? Well, we see four because there are four different ways that that light can go around and reach us. Now, if we're in an allergy world for a moment, Chris KB, and you know I don't like to go into that that space. I can live there. But say the star is someone with a flashlight in Sydney. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Or better still, a car. Yeah, sure. (laughs) And they're going to drive to Melbourne. And the question is, which way do they go? And the answer to that is, well... They can go straight down the Hume mm-hmm. via Canberra. Mm-hmm. They can take the coast road. Yeah. If they're really, really mad, they'll go via Adelaide. Mm-hmm. But there's a variety of ways sure. that they can go. And each of those trips takes a different amount of time. Now, this is exactly what has happened with the light from the star. It has taken various different paths to get to us. And so what we're seeing is that star in different times. You know, so one image might be, you know, say a thousand years ago, one might be 500 years ago, one might be a million, you know, et cetera, right? So we're looking at the star at different points in its history because the light from it took different amounts of time to get to us when it went around this big object. So it's like the the various paths the car can take, you know, straight down the Hume, I'll see you tomorrow, go to Coast Roads, an extra three hours, et cetera. Why why does it have four different, why not? A hundred, why not one? Okay, well, so, and, and this is a really good question because actually often this happens and what we see is not four, but if it was a perfect situation, we would just see a ring. Yeah. Because it could go any path around. The problem is there's so much junk between us and it that a lot of points on the ring just never make it. Ah. So there's only four areas where it really makes it nice and clean to us. Okay. Now, here's the interesting part that's happened here is that, In an image taken of this region in 2016, there were these four stars. In an image taken three years later in 2019, there was only one. Hmm. The question is, what happened Hmm. during that three-year period? And and granted, this light has taken many, many more years to get to us. So Mm -hmm. this is looking back into the past. But back into the past, in that three-year period, something happened. And what happened was that star went supernova. Ah, yes. And so essentially it is now gone. Yeah. Right? Or the remnants of it are there, but it is gone. So three of these images show this star gone, but in one of the images it's still there. (laughs) Hang on. (laughs) Now, here's the thing. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that final one, the information about the supernova or it disappearing, hasn't happened yet in that image because that path is a lot longer. Ah. So when we look at that fourth fourth version of the star, the fourth fourth image, yes, we're looking at it further back in time. Um, in a few years, we will get the light from that star when the supernova occurs. Yeah. So the question is, well, hang on. So in one sense, what, we, we look too late, like we missed the other three. Yeah, right? sure. They just blinked out. And we probably weren't looking, you know, we took an image in 2016, we took another one in 2019, somewhere in the middle, this happened. Three of them yeah. went away. Yeah. Right. And they probably got very bright suddenly and then went away. But the fourth one hasn't happened yet. So the question is, when will it happen and can we work that out? Yeah. Because if we can, that means we could point a bucket load of really yeah. strong telescopes at the, and study it as it actually occurs, which is super exciting. And guess what? They have worked that out and that will happen in 2037. 2037. So the yeah. So, so this, okay, this is going to sound silly, <laughs> especially for someone as disorganised as me. Is there a date? No. So, okay. so here's the thing. What they've done is they've estimated the mass of this object in the middle 
um, by by all the other stars that are being sort of refracted yep. around yep. and so forth. And so they can estimate that it will take, you know, this much longer for that light to get to us if it goes around, let's say, the Adelaide path. Sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so they've, they've estimated that this should happen around 2037. Now, that might not be exactly right. Okay. But i tell you this much. If I was sitting there in 2036, I'd be pointing the bucket loaded yeah, the telescopes yeah. at this thing and just waiting. Yeah. Because you know within a year or two, um, for sure, you're going to see this and you, you'll get to see this star go nova and then blink out and be gone. That's awesome. Just like in yeah. the other three pictures. So it's this incredible aspect of general relativity where mm. big objects distort space and light has to travel different paths. What's the, what's the object? It's it's just a star. It's nothing. Uh, oh, the object oh, in the middle? Yeah, the, the big, oh, it's the big a, thing. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a, it's a super um, enormous galaxy cluster. So it's a, okay. it's a whole range okay. of galaxies. So it's a big deal. Yeah. Um, it's it's a very big object, mm. but it's distorted all the stuff from behind it yeah. coming towards us. And we see these effects. It's interesting. We're seeing a lot of these effects in the data out of the James Webb Telescope yeah. at the moment. Um, in some of those images, you'll see all these streaks mm. and they're actual light that's been sort of bent and smeared. Yeah, nice. Um, which is really cool. And as I say, if you have a perfect, what's called an Einstein ring, you'll just get a, a circle. Mm. Now, of course, nothing's that neat in mm. space. So there's a couple of examples, but generally speaking. Well, Einstein himself wasn't that neat. Wasn't that neat. I mean, take a look at the hair. Um, <laughs> what can you say? Um, anyway, <laughs> that's all good. But uh, this, so I've been, you can see now why I've been sitting on this one. Yeah, no, I like because, that. Because um, this thing's 10 billion years away from us. It's a long, 10 billion light years. It's a long, you know, long way away, mm. very distant stuff. And um, the bottom line is, uh, we, uh, you know, I had until, let's say, 2036 to do this story. Yeah, I'm actually surprised you, you actually waited this long. <laughs> <laughs> well, you never know. Uh, but I thought, you know, I got a little bit of time. Um, yeah, no need to rush into it. But uh, there we go. Triple R. On the line with us now, all the way from Perth, is Associate Professor Katerina Milkovic from the Curtin University Space Science and Technology Centre and School of Earth and Planetary Sciences. Katerina, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Shane. I'm great. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you on the line. I think uh, we missed you when you were in Melbourne, unfortunately. when you, you, you were touring recently, weren't you, talking to a lot of different groups? Yes, that's correct. I, I My tour is still ongoing. Yes, so I only happened to spend a couple of days in Victoria in late July and I missed out on an opportunity to come talk to you in person. So I'm, I'm calling in from Perth right now. But uh, I've just recently came back from Tassie and um, I'm planning next to go to South Australia and a little bit back to New South Wales and Queensland and then finishing the tour in Perth, really. Oh, fantastic. That sounds great. And um, what? tell us a little bit about the tour, because this is obviously not a insignificant number of stops you're making. Um, what's, you know, what's the general sort of gist of that? Is it part of a program? Tell us about that. Yeah, so um, the, the, this is the program funded and supported and promoted by the Australian Institute of Physics. The, the whole program is called Women in Physics uh, lecture, lecture or Lectureship. Um, so every year um, the IAP supports one woman working in, in physics-related fields mm. and um, sends her out on a national tour for uh, public outreach and speaking events. Predominantly that is to go out to schools or give public um, talks out of universities or wherever it's, it's convenient to host. So generally I would spend or uh, a lecture would spend two to three days uh, in each state and territory during the course of my year. So um, one year they get somebody from international and some and one and then another year somebody that is based nationally. So 
Um, that's how I got on this year. So mm. it's, it can either be a tour when you are four weeks on the road, which is normal for international speakers, or for me it's been broken down uh, into multiple legs um, throughout the year. So, uh, But cumulatively still about three to four weeks on the road. Yeah, fantastic. And I, I mean, you mentioned, you know, they do an international and a local, but how do you get picked for this? I mean, there are so many amazing researchers, women researchers that I know. Um, the, the competition must be pretty hard or did they just tap you on the shoulder? How does that work? There is an application process. Yep. So all you send out your CV and the proposed abstract um, for the for the lecture, for the talk. So I think it's a little bit of both. So they do they do want to promote um, women uh, in physics um, earlier early in their careers so that the whole um, point of the career is to give a little bit of visibility and, and, mm. and promote their, their fields of work. So somebody who's talented and somebody who has a good idea and, and, and is an engaging speaker, really. So and those two have to go hand in hand, I think. So I got lucky this year. I think there's always a little bit of luck. It's not everything yeah. about merit. Oh, no, that's still good, still good. Now, you work, um, or you know, in, in a range of areas, but one that I find is fascinating is this sort of impact area with planetary bodies. And I understand that you've been looking at the data from some of the NASA missions, especially the InSight mission, where they, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but they have a seismology experiment on Mars. Is that correct? That's very correct. So, yes, I've been... I've been engaged with the NASA Insight mission as a science team member since uh, almost almost ten years now, a little mm. bit less than that. But uh, Insight has been operating on Mars for the past um, three and a half years, and it's getting close to the end of its uh, mission lifetime this year. Mm. It does have a seismometer on board. It's the very first seismometer that was placed on another planet um, that is actually operational and working and giving us is in mass quakes, mass quakes um, recordings. So we have over a thousand mass quakes recorded so far, and some of them uh, have come from impacts. So that's kind of where my role comes into play. You know, like when we talk about space missions, these are, these are huge international endeavors. So yes, yep. it's, it's coming out of NASA, but it engages hundreds of people across the globe and everybody has their own role. Um, so my role is to contribute to understanding of a meteorite striking the surface of Mars and what kind of quakes and shakes could those cause. Because um, my, uh, my like, very specific field of expertise that I apply to understanding structure of evolution planetary bodies is actually coming from numerical modeling of rocks from space hitting rocks from space. Mm. So basically how small rocks hit planets and make craters. And I would use um, shock physics code where this is where this core physics come into play, right? So, um, and try to understand all of those changes to rocks as they collide and what kind of craters they make. Yeah. So when, um, with regards to the, the seismology and the, the Mars quakes, which is a term, you know, people are very familiar with the term earthquake, but they don't hear the term Mars quake very often or, or moonquake for that matter. I mean, we've been measuring that for, for many decades now as well. But with, with regards to the, the impact and measuring the quakes or not quakes, but the, the seismological sort of, um, I, I suppose signal from those, how much information can you gain given the one seismic sort of detection system on Mars? Like, are you able to determine location, size? Like, how much can you pull out of the models in that sense? You'll be surprised with one very um, interesting and fun fact. 
Mars is a smaller planet to Earth. Mm. So when seismic events happen, um, the seismic waves, whether they're body waves or surface waves, can actually go around the planet multiple times if they're big enough. So with that in mind, there are multiple arrival times of the same event into one seismic station. So Mm. you you get body waves, you get surface waves, and sometimes they can be multiple times. So from those different seismic waves, and they all have different arrival times to that one seismic station, um, it is actually possible to determine the, the distance to the source and the, and the depth of the source. So it's not possible for all the sources. I mean, uh, but um, be, given that Mars is a, um, a smaller planet and also quite mm. more um, environmentally quieter than Earth, so we don't have oceans and we don't have a lot of wind and atmosphere to kind of keep us in the way. So the noises, noise levels are quite lower on Mars than on the Earth. So then that all goes in favour of that one station working really well. Mm. And in terms of when, when you say sort of a thousand, I think you mentioned the thousand quakes in um, a relatively short period of time that we've measured um, on Mars, how many of those are caused by impacts? This is still a little bit of work in progress, so I'm going to be deliberately vague. So um, maybe, um, you know, we can talk again in a month or two yep. um, because there's some work still ongoing. But um, we know from uh, we know from collaborating with another mission called Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, or MRO. MRO Orbiter um, has been at Mars for a very long time and has been imaging the surface from orbit. So it's got two cameras. Um, and from using those just regular cameras, right, but high-resolution cameras, um, it actually snaps snap surface of, of Mars um, on a regular basis. So we know um, from multiple passages, we know when new impacts happen because mm-hmm. we have image before and the image after impact. So we know that there are impacts that have been happening on Mars since Insight has landed. Um, and the number isn't small. We, we I think it's at least 20 or 30 that we know of that happened on Mars uh, since Insight landed. But uh, the question is how many of them have been actually triggering quakes and that mm. some of that stuff is still um, ongoing research. Um, it, it, we, we were hoping to get at least a dozen. You know, that was... That was uh, hopes and dreams before Insight was launched. The predicted impact rates was, let's say, at least a dozen impacts over the course of Earth's year. And then as the mission kept going, <laughs> the number of expectation kind of kept going down and down. Uh, but um, I can tell you for sure that it's not zero. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it, it's so interesting, especially as we uh, – are you excited about the, um, the Artemis mission, you know, Artemis 1 that's happening, you know, launch hopefully in about a, just over a week? I mean, this is, this is our sort of pathway to Mars over time. I, mean, I know it's a little bit of a, 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 bit of a, a wait till we get to Mars, but this must be pretty exciting with the idea of us actually walking on Mars and setting up some of these scientific instruments in various locations, Yeah. You know what? The only the only thing there's two things that I um, I'm sorry I'm not a bit older is that one is that I haven't had a chance to see Pink Floyd live and I haven't had a chance to, to see to sit in front of the telly and see a man walk on the moon, right? <laughs> so um, those are the only two things that I you know I wish I was older. Um, so I'm I'm really hoping that in our lifetimes um, that we get to see and feel that 
um, emotion of seeing a human walk on another surface again. So um, I'm very excited for Artemis and one is um, for the very reason, not only just that we get to place the man on the moon again yep. or woman on the moon again, it's, it's because we get to do ongoing active research and exploration mm. on the moon, uh, which has started with Apollo in a, in a, like a very petite sense, but I'm really hoping that it becomes a bit of a larger scale and an ongoing research capability, building of a research capability with having astronauts on the moon all the time. So that will really open up space exploration to the extent that we, we can't even fathom. Um, you know, I can, I can maybe intrigue your listeners by asking them a question um, or telling them a bit of a fun fact, like, Insight has been operating on on Mars for almost four years, yep. and it, it, the cost of this is, you know, two billion dollars when you in, include everything. Mm. And uh, we got recorded over a thousand mass quakes, and we got a really, really invaluable science. I don't dispute that. But it took, let's say, once since I landed and unpacked all the seismometer and all other scientific packages, it took over three months. If you had a moon, if you had someone a human mm. walking on Mars, that unpacking of those instruments would take off a lot less time. So, But sending humans to Mars takes off a lot of money. So that's a trade-off. Like, what, where, where do we want to see ourselves go in terms of space exploration? It's kind of like yeah. investing in human, human, sending humans to space or investing in making our robots better. Um, there is no right or wrong answer. It's just one way or another. Or maybe we can evolve. Yeah, well, I think I think we'll probably end up doing both, especially as we start, you know, exploring the moons of the outer planets and so forth. I, I expect it'll be a while before we we're out there. But um, look, I, I have every expectation you're going to see all of this, Katerina. I, I certainly know I do. Uh, I, I intend to. I, I was born, I think, as I recall, and people can do the calculations here between Apollo 15 and 16. Um, so I, I was too young to really appreciate it back then. But um, having been lucky enough to meet several of the Apollo astronauts and interview them on, on this show. Um, I very much look forward to, to seeing the return to the moon, hopefully within the next couple of years, which would be spectacular. Now, before we let you go, though, I, I just wanted to ask you also about this particular um, meteorite that uh, was found in, in part of Africa that you helped um, with the identification of that and determining that that meteorite actually was a piece of Mars that got flung out and ended up here on Earth. Tell us about that. That's an ex- extraordinarily rare find. Uh, yeah, that, well, we've known about this meteorite for quite some time, but um, the, the what the study was trying to do is to identify a source crater on Mars from which that rock was flung out and mm. then eventually ended up on Earth. Um, this this study was led by my my co-workers, um, Anthony Lagan and Gretchen Benedicts, who have been spending the last several years building a machine learning algorithm to count and identify craters on Mars. And by making the fancy machine learning um, piece of kit, really, uh, they've been able to start answering some of these really interesting and important questions. So, um, so um, Anthony and Gretchen narrowed down to regions of interest where could be possible sources of, of this particular meteorite, given its age and composition um, and the way it was fundamentally shocked on its way of being ejected uh, or tossed around Mars' surface and then ejected and eventually ended up on Earth. Mm. So... Um, 
I help the study by literally providing what I, what I often do is the, that shock physics calculation that um, justifies and connects the shock history observed in meteorite and cross-checked with the, the shock exposure of the, of the ejected rock for a given size crater. And that really helps seal the deal in terms of like confirming that the suspected source crater really has to be a certain size and a certain structure to, to cause such an ejection of a rock. So it literally is kind of coming in a, in a hay, looking for a needle in a, in a haystack, really, and just trying the right fit, that, that shoe that really fits. Yeah. So we've they've identified a potential source. So um, I, I'm quite excited about that. Yeah, look, it's magnificent. What, what's the trip time there for a rock from um, being ejected from Mars getting to Earth? Oh, gosh, that is a very good question. Um, you're going to test my uh, <laughs> early in the morning. You could, you could just so, say um, years if you like. You just well, say years. <laughs> so, um, uh, it would it would it would take a significant amount of time, but rocks in space do fly um, at significant speeds. Mm. So um, we're talking, let's say, um, about 10, 10 kilometers per second, or even more, depends on whether they get get attracted by by gravity and what yep. kind of orbit they have. So when we have rocks from space encountering planets at Earth, they're about. 20 kilometers per second on Mars. It's a little bit less than that, maybe, um, you know, six to 12 kilometers per second. But I'm talking, these are insanely high speeds and they do really make an impact because like, you know, cause just think about it, like speed of sound in the air, you know, mm. on the earth is 300 meters per second. So anything that's moving faster than the speed of sound goes to the sound barrier. Right. So yeah. these are, yeah. these are, these are several or several times, Tens of faster objects, yeah. so it's it's kind of hard for us to really imagine that. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes, oh look, it's a, it's amazing stuff, and like that that history of a rock like that, and trying to work out where it came from, frankly, is just phenomenal science. And the fact that you guys have a a candidate location on Mars for where that rock might have come from, and taken that in enormously long and and you know very very lucky journey to actually make it to Earth and then be found here and identified as 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 part of Mars. I mean, we get so many meteorites on on Earth, but the idea that some of them, a very small number, are actually you know part of another planet, and we just had the chance to to be able to see those, find those, and then and then to determine you know which crater they may have come from on Mars is phenomenal. Katharina, thanks so much for being our guest today on Einstein and Gogo. Good luck with your ongoing tour of um, inspiring people with regards to science. And I suspect I know exactly what you'll be watching uh, next Monday evening, I believe, at about ten thirty at night when the Artemis rocket takes off. Yeah. Definitely, definitely will be there online supporting. Thank you very much, Shane, for having me on on your show. Absolutely, my pleasure. Folks, uh, that was uh, Associate Professor Katerina Milchevic from Curtin University Space Science and Technology Centre in the School of Earth and Planetary Sciences. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. In the studio with us now is Dr. Liam Hall. 
Liam is an ARC DECRA fellow and a senior research fellow in the School of Chemistry at the University of Melbourne. Welcome to the studio, Liam. Thanks for having me, Shane. Very exciting. It's good to have you here. We worked together many moons ago. Yes, was it was that? a long time like ago. Like 2008 yeah. or something. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you're right. Um, yeah, I'm embarrassed it's taken me this long to catch up with you again, but yes, here <laughs> yeah. we are. <laughs> and you're working in the School of Chemistry. Yes, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, jump ship. Um, so I think we've, you know, spent a lot of time developing quantum sensors, as you know, based yeah. on Diamond uh, in the School of Physics. And then, uh, you know, eventually we had to, I, I suppose, put up or shut up in terms of, you know, trying to apply those to something. Yep. Um in this case, we're thinking along the lines of analytical chemistry. Um, so we're, you know, we're, we're basically trying to buy, uh, apply those in a, um, in some senses to a, uh, I suppose, a medical diagnostic um, sort of application, and then other things to, you know, in situ monitoring of chemical yeah. production um, in, you know, uh, you know, sort of industrial con- uh, context, I suppose. But- yeah. Cool stuff. Now, are you in the old chemistry building or in Bio Twenty One? Uh, no, we're in the old one. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, yep. Is it still got a slight odor? Yes, it does. It's got it's got odors. It's got noises. It's got uh, it. yeah. It's got everything. So it's a lot lot of character in the building. You know, I remember once because I worked there for several years, and I remember once I walked in. I said to one of my colleagues, I said, "You know, this building used to smell a little bit, a little chemically." And he said to me, "He goes, dude, it still does. <laughs> yeah. uh, but now you smell like the building. Is that <laughs> this is yeah. where this is your future? I know, that, that, that's the scary thing is when you stop noticing the smell. Yeah. That's the yeah. As soon as you can't smell it, that's when you're yeah. in trouble. So. I think I mean to give people a feel for that. I mean, there's so many solvents in that new. So I yeah. guess you just you smell some of those, and there's a slight you know alcoholy sort of yeah, smell. Yeah, and I think I've I've brought my physicists. Um, pedanticness to the to the school. I go around, I feel like I'm closing fume hoods all the time and things, you know, so. Um, so oh, but, look, yeah. you, you got to do that. I, I had a great moment in sport when, because um, I bumped into my year 12 chemistry teacher. Oh, yeah. And um, this was a guy who, when I, I left, you know, Melbourne High School, I said, um, I will never, you know, Mr. Hennel, love you, but we'll never do chemistry again in my life. And I bumped into him and he said, oh, where are you working now? I said, oh, school chemistry. <laughs> And he said this look, and it yeah, it was a, it was one of those looks on on his face, and I thought, well, okay, fair enough. Now, uh, Liam, your work. Now, you uh, one of the things you're looking at is NMR spectroscopy. Now, give us a bit of a flavour. What what is that? Because not everyone knows what this is. It's not something we use so much in medicine. Yes, um, but we use it a lot. Um, as a research tool, yeah. So, so um, I suppose it, it's probably the when you think about identifying the uh, the molecular components that make up uh, whatever sample it is that you're interested in. Mm. I mean, it could be you know it could be anywhere from a food sample um, and you know an anatomical sample all the way down to uh, some chemical that you're trying to synthesize. Um, yep. And so, this is the kind of gold uh, standard technique for identifying uh, impurities and molecular structure and, and so on that makes up uh, the you know the, the whatever it is that you've ended up with from your yield uh, or from your you know, your test sample or whatever it is. Um, so this gives you, a, I, I suppose, the, the, the best possible benchmark that you can have, um, you know, for, for identifying what's there. The problem with um, NMR is traditionally it's it's well known as being, uh, I think, a fairly insensitive technique. Right. Um, and then this is why we've sort of gone from traditional NMR to developing these quantum sensors based on diamond, which, you know, your, your history, you have a lot of... Um, Mm. Uh, uh, um, experience with. Um, and then so the sort of harnessing those quantum aspects of these sensors allows us to get a lot more sensitivity over and above what we would have had, yep. uh, you know, with the, with the sort of the traditional way of doing these with a big, um, you know, room-sized spectrometer. Yeah, I remember so. those. I think it was um, Francis Saprovic, I think, who yes, was running yeah. one in chemistry. I'm not, I think Francis yeah, is right. retired, yeah, yeah. but, you know, absolute gun with regards to that machine yeah. and everyone sort of just, you know, we just all bow down to yeah, her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we, and we still do. I still mean, do? Yeah, yeah, Francis is still around. And, oh, right, yeah, yep, um, yep. I think she's 
actually away overseas at the moment, but yep. um, still front and centre in, in in all of that, uh, the NMS, NMR yeah. stuff at Bio21. Yep. So, yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, uh, cool stuff. And in terms of, like, one of the things that you're doing is you're bringing together, you know, descriptions of this and how this works with your music. With, yes, yes. Now, this, you know, you didn't bring your guitar, which I'm very disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was a strategic decision. To, oh, <laughs> oh, yeah. You're Chris... KP, you know, he's, a, he's a musician. You know, you could have um, sort of taken us out to the break or something. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, as they say. Um, but tell us, I mean, what what are you doing there? Because I think one of the things I find fascinating is the human ability to see variations in music of that is phenomenal. Yes, yeah. Even like, you know, when you have two notes that are discordant, we can pick that up. Absolutely. Anyone can pick that up. Even yep. non-musical people can pick that up and go, there's yes. something wrong there. So our, our neural ability to sort of interact with musical sounds and so forth is fascinating. How are you using that? to sort of connect people to yeah, NMR? Yeah. yeah, so that's a great question. Um, so really, uh, you know, so I suppose quantum um, physics is something that, that's thought of as being a, a tough subject to, mm. to crack. Um, yeah. And, you know, the, I guess the traditional ways of, of, of learning about that discipline have been, you know, you, get, you spend years at university doing crazy experiments, learning crazy maths, um, all of this to try and overhaul what was your, I suppose, classical conceptual view yeah. of the universe. I'm about to have a traumatic flashback. <laughs> yeah, hang in there, hang in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But, um, but I guess what we're trying to do as part of this program is, is show that, uh, you know, really um, – Having an understanding of, of uh, musical uh, concepts, even at a basic level, things like um, you know intervals, chords, mm. uh, frequency spectra, um, things like that, um, are more than enough of a basis to, to really understand the quantum concepts that that are behind uh, you know I suppose this newer technology, things like quantum computers, quantum mm. sensors, things that yep. you know, that people are really starting to become interesting as this technology finds its way into society. So so really, we're not trying to to teach anybody quantum mechanics in yep. this program. It's more just to sort of um, you know, lift the veil off and say, well, actually, you, you do have the toolkit to be able to understand these things, um, mm. but it's it's perhaps in a, you know, in a disguised form, you know. Mm. Yeah. Um, so try and, yeah, try and sort of show that, you know, people actually can understand these things with, you know, provided they have some some musical background. Quantum by stealth. I think so, yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. a good way of putting it. Look, yeah. I, I think it's interesting because, you know, we often, uh, I remember, you know, when we worked together and so forth, there was always this idea of, oh, you can't explain that stuff. And it's like, yeah, well, yeah. actually you can yes. if you do the work yeah. and you're innovative about how you go about it. If you use traditional mechanisms, you will probably fail. So this is this may sound ambitious, but does it ever work in reverse? Do you ever get somebody, because a, a lot of our understanding of our experience of music, if you like, is almost innate. Yes. So unless you've, unless you've studied it or do it a lot, you don't really think about it. You, but as Shane said, you recognise dissonance, you understand yep. rhythm, you know, people dance instinctively, if you like, uh, for example. So does it ever work in reverse where you go, yeah, I can help you understand why that stuff works for you? Because I, think, I can explain what's yeah, going on. Yeah, I think at a mechanistic level, definitely. I think, um, you know, you could, you could certainly take somebody who, you know, somehow managed to, to miss music entirely um, <laughs> growing up um, but, but found themselves in, you know, working as a, um, you know, theoretical physicist or something. So I think it's <laughs> yeah, like, like, like an experiment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah that's that big diagram yeah. is a circle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Sure. I, I, yeah, I think so, so you could understand the, you know, the mechanistic concepts and things like frequency spectra and yeah. so on. But um, I guess it would be, a good test of whether it is innate, you know, like, you know, the difference between major chords and minor chords. Or well, I think, and, yeah, you know, I think um, that's where I'm coming from because I guess, I mean, to some extent there there are ranges of universality 
through cultures. Yes. Yep. It, there are some things in music that just Definitely, are. Yeah, yeah. And there are others where it's like, yeah, no, not really. Yeah. Not a thing. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, it, it would be interesting to see, you know, so things like a tritone, for example, yeah. if we think um, in, in um, you know, equal temperament, is uh, the ratio between two um, two notes that is, uh, what is it, the square root of two, right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, everyone hates doing, um, uh, you know, square roots and, and you know, <laughs> yes. um, arith- that sort of arithmetic yeah. in high school. Um, so maybe, you know, the reason why that's sound so dissonant is perhaps, you know, there, there is a, like a natural sort of irrationality behind what's going How on. interesting. Um, yeah. So it's cool stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Square roots, are, I mean, they're very valuable. I mean, recently my um, my 14-year-old asked me how to, how to do square roots, so all the time I'd spent learning square roots suddenly became very valuable to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. That's, <laughs> dear, oh, dear. And, and, and the word surds came up. I'm like, oh, no. I vaguely remember this from It almost feels oddly uncomfortable to say was, that, doesn't it? I was it? like, yeah, <laughs> there's, something, there's something wrong with that word, yeah. surds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I want to say absurds. Well, I think it's a combination yeah. of sir and turd. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. So that's the problem. I mean, my son is, is is nine years old and he's learning about these things now. And yeah. it's like, did you, I beg your pardon? And it's like, yeah. oh, no, Dad, it's not yeah. that. Yeah, 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 don't you talk about in this house, young man. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, it, it does come back to you, I find. Um, you know, doing doing maths to third year uni does pay off. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, when, yeah. when one of your kids asks for help. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> Although yeah. I must admit, I don't remember doing long division except when I did long division at school. Yeah. Like, I had to learn it three times. Yeah. And I've lost it again now. Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> It'll come back. Three times. Anyway, we should uh, – we digress. Uh, we're running out of time, so we should say um, – now, Liam, you have a show coming up. <coughs> yes. That people can yep. come along to at the Capital Theatre at RMIT. That's so tell us uh, when and where and what will they see. So Wednesday night, um, so this coming Wednesday night, 6 yep. o'clock. Um, so there's tickets uh, available. Um, uh, I'm not sure I – we could probably find some way of uh, you know, sending a link through or yep, something we can for do people that. to be able yep, to find we'll them. Thank you. Um, and, yeah, so, I mean, really this is just, um, you know, my, my research group and I, obviously we're passionate quantum people, but um, obviously um, passionate music, uh, you know, people as well. Um, we've all got a musical background, which is nice to find myself in a, mm, you know, in a yeah. group like that. Um, and uh, so, we're, you know, we're putting on this this show, I guess, I mean, originally it was kind of conceived as a, as a fun way of bringing these two passions together. Uh, you know, but what we're sort of seeing now, um, which is what we're trying to also get across in this show, not just that you can understand quantum mechanics with, you know, with a musical background, but um, really that, you know, bringing passions together can, can seem like fun, but quickly you realise that there's a payoff there that you might not have um, an- anticipated. So, you know, streaming data from from uh, these molecules, I mean, we're, we're basically sending in musical signals to these molecules via NMR and then mm. listening back to the sounds that they produce in such a way that it harmonises with, with, you know, the music that we're playing yep. at the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so this is fun and it sounds beautiful, but, I mean, there's a, you know, there's a, a, a practical aspect to that, you know, streaming uh, NMR data from sensors in situ. We might think about sensors that are in the human body or, you know, as I say, in an industrial um, quality control context yep. or something like that. Um, you know, you can think about, uh, you know, sending in, a, in audio signals gives us a new handle to, to do quantum control and quantum information mm-hmm. processing, mm-hmm. people who are in that space. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the audio sides of things, I mean, really listening to the actual frequencies that are coming from molecules, this is not, um, you know, shifting frequencies to try and get something interesting. This is the, the pure tones that these things that are putting are within out. Within our hearing range. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, which yeah, is cool. Yeah. Yeah. They're just, I mean, they're obviously not loud enough for us to hear. Yeah, yeah. The that's that's right. that, but, it, but that's they're exactly in our range right. of hearing. Yes, so this is the one part of the, of the uh, electromagnetic spectrum that does overlap with, yeah. with human hearing. Um, so that, yeah, that just gives us, 
I suppose, access to this whole audio landscape, interactive, um, you know, that we wouldn't have had as musicians otherwise. So I think, you know, sometimes it can seem, oh, you know, this is fun, we'll stick these two things together and see what happens. But Mm. really, you know, if I can... If I could be so bold, I mean, you end up with, you know, this this scenario where the whole is much more than the sum of its mm. parts and, and yeah. a lot of those things we, we just didn't anticipate uh, beforehand. So that's yeah. been really exciting. No, that's so cool. So this this takes me back to, you know, 1980s film Electric Dreams where a woman Great playing film. the cello, yes. she did the jam session with the computer. <laughs> yes. um, this is that on steroids, yeah. like <laughs> yeah, the, the modern-day version. Yes. Um, like I think Liam's looking at me, well, how old are you? Yeah. <laughs> well, no, so like I that. know what you're talking about. You know so I'm, I'm, I'm just as guilty. And about three of our <laughs> listeners do too, which is great. Um, but look, this this sounds really exciting. So, um, well, if you send me the details, we'll tweet those yeah, out for you. you. But it's at the Capitol Theatre at RMIT this Wednesday, folks, between six and seven pm. And I'm sure you'll be. I'm sure you can find the details via the um, the Science Week um, sort of list yes, of events. Yes. Um, and uh, you guys will be jamming it out and doing some cool stuff. Can't and wait. And I time. should say, yeah, so we're teaming up with um, local uh, artists. Well, it shouldn't locally bred artists but internationally renowned, uh, Jake nice. Amy, um, yep. so local uh, uh, composer, producer, um, and uh, superstar on the on the keys. So so he'll be there as well. So um, so it's a it's a good team. So hopefully hopefully we can get it right on the night and things will come out. We don't have any malfunctions. But. Fantastic. I'm sure it'll be cool. And even if there's malfunctions, you know what? Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> That's our attitude here at Triple R. We, you know, happens uh, and it's all part of the reality. Dr. Liam Hall, thanks so much for coming in. Good uh, to see you again. Yeah, great to see you again. Thanks. Thanks, Chris. Folks, uh, Liam Hall is a senior research fellow in the School of Chemistry at the University of Melbourne. If you want to hear him play some tunes, uh, rock on down to RMIT this Wednesday night. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Chris KP, over to you. So I was thinking about the show, which is not – that should Good. not be special. <laughs> um, but I was, I was thinking that, you know, I, I know people who – uh, either you know regularly or frequently have uh, our program or the Sunday morning programs on in their house as they're potting yep. around on a Sunday. People I know at driving places have it on. Someone might have stumbled on it by accident. Someone you know people tune into the podcast, etc. And obviously, even though we're very into this program, not everybody is. What? Everybody, well, Sorry, I, know. What? So, I know, right? It's crazy. <laughs> at least I speculate that they're not. And and even if they are, life goes on. You know, and mm. while, you, while you listen to the program, life goes on, and it occurred to me, hang on, what what is that? What does that mean? What actually happens? So I started thinking about, you know, what actually happens in, uh, uh, you know, in an hour when you'll listen to this program. So, you know. Okay. So, so I've got a list of things that <laughs> while you've been engrossed in Einstein and Gogo today, as you are most weekends, I assume, has been happening Around you. Oh, boy. Is this going to be your grass is growing 3.2 millimetres? Uh, I haven't got a grass growing one. <laughs> Although I can tell you, as the days get longer and yeah, the it's light, going to happen. <laughs> it's, uh, the grass at our place is, I can, I can almost feel it waiting. It's like, yeah, it's really just, you wait, mate, just you yeah, wait. Just you wait. I'll get Yeah. Yep. Uh, about 15,000 people were born. Um, presumably not listen to the program, uh, but please, if you were listening to Einstein and Gogo whilst giving birth, drop us a line. Yep. Give yourself a couple of days, but drop us a line. We'd love to know that as being the case. Uh, about about two billion cells were turned over in your body. Oh, yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some yeah, you know, they they move they they uh, they change at different rates from parts of your body, yep. but about two billion, which is a lot. I don't have grass, but I do have hair. So if you've got hair that's growing, uh, a point about point oh one seven millimeters longer. Than it was an hour ago. Um, I remember those days. 
<laughs> if you don't have hair that's growing, <laughs> move on. Irrelevant yeah, to you. I'm that's okay. that one. Yeah, that's all right. Uh, uh, there were about 250 million Google searches. Ooh. That's a lot. I did a couple of them, by the way, uh, during the show. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so <laughs> I've made my contribution. Uh, about 3,000 flights took off, um, which is neither good nor bad. It's just a thing. About 2,500 with the luggage. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, and none of them on time, yep. um, but that's okay. Uh, Four million photographs were uploaded to Instagram. Really? Yes. How in nuts is that? Four million? Yes, that's I've insane. only seen two of them. Yes. I don't know how many of them are good either, but yeah. that's a lot. Wow. Um, on a perhaps, perhaps less positive level, uh, about just under 8,000 acres of forest were destroyed. That's awful. Yeah. It's yeah. about it's about uh, 1.2, it's about 1,200 MCGs, if you'd like a... Uh, 1,200 MCGs. Um, that's a lot. That's a lot of space that's a, a forest. Can I say it? We're shit humans. We're, we're bad. <laughs> we, that's a lot. Yeah. And this, yeah. and we know it's bad. Um, I, I, there is some more bad news. Mm. Um, if I can get okay. to, if I, you know, if, if I, if I want to bring the mood down more. Um, this is not bad news though. Uh, about 100, 150,000 lightning strikes. Yep. On earth. Um, probably, probably not, uh, close to us here in Melbourne, yep. but around the, the planet, give or take. Very cool. Uh, our, our, our tectonic plate has moved. We're literally not in the same place we were on the planet um, mm. an hour ago. It's, it's only by about 0.0078 millimetres. It's not a lot. You probably didn't you notice can it. feel it. Well, I don't, maybe you can. Yeah. I don't know. I feel it. Uh, <laughs> that was just a rushed breakfast. <laughs> uh, about 26,000 iPhones were made. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot. Um, it's especially a lot when you consider that uh, in Australia alone in the last hour, we've produced about 8,900 uh, 8, tonnes of landfill. Oh. Yeah. So that's a lot. Uh, all that stuff that we make, uh, you know, uh, the, the longer we can keep it made and using, used, yeah. the yep. better, because that's a lot. Uh, my best estimate, and this is totally, it's very hard to get a handle on, my best estimate in the last hour, about 12 species became extinct hmm. in an hour. It's a lot. Yeah, it's a hell of a lot. Yeah, yeah do the maths on and wind it up a bit. Uh, and this is a real, a real crapshoot. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, I, Lyndon, one, one of our uh, our um, Einstein and Go Goers, um, uh, did her very best to give me some numbers. But we think that the Earth has got something like point zero 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 two oh five degrees warmer, just in an hour. Yeah, it's not much. And it's very up. variable. But that's the thing. Yeah. Every hour. It's not just they didn't pick this yep. hour. Yep. Uh, in fact, speaking of, uh, we've we produced something in the region of five and a half megatons of greenhouse gases. That's wow. a million tons. But so five and a half of those in the last hour. Uh, on a happier note, perhaps, your blood has yep. circulated through your body uh, about 180 times. Really? Yeah, it's, it's, it's rough and rushing all over the place. Time for a refresh. Uh, well, apparently, yes. Yeah. Um, you've taken about uh, somewhere in the region of about 900 breaths. <laughs> okay. You blinked more than a thousand times. I wasn't counting. I was listening intently. I wasn't counting. I okay. swear. Um, and I think if I've done the the arithmetic correctly, that not only has have we moved on the planet and to some extent around the studio, yep. I'm pretty sure that we've moved in our orbit more than a hundred thousand k's. Yeah. Does that and, sound, does that sound oh, about yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. and in addition to that, our sun. Is in orbit of the galaxy. And I was it has moved ask a lot this. further than that. And yes. our galaxy is moving too. Yeah. So we're flying. So, yes. It's all relative, of course. But yes. I love that idea that um, 100,000 Ks is nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Yep. It doesn't even matter. This, this always comes up for me when I watch shows that have time travel. Uh-huh. Because I always think you travel forward in time by 10 years. Did you take into account the fact that the Earth is nowhere <laughs> yeah. near where yeah. you started? Uh, and, yeah. Anyway. But I just got to suspend that one. Let That's it a, go. Well, just got to let it go. Assume that they've worked it out. Yeah, yeah. Assume they've worked it out. Yeah, Doc Brown worked it out. The DeLorean 
had something in it. Tell you what, though, it. wouldn't it be a? It's a good storyline if they didn't. Oh yeah, imagine just they go out there and they go back in time. It's like I'm in the right place, but where's the planet? Yeah, where's the air? <laughs> where's the air? <laughs> Indeed. Anyway, All there right. You go. <laughs> a great list, Chris KP. Thank you very much. Uh, folks, we're going to have to hand over to the team in uh, Studio 2. The great team from Edit is ready to broadcast in just a few moments. Remember, next week is the Radiothon. We are going to have an awesome time. Chris KP will be back. I'll be back. Very uh, happy. A few other great people will be in the studio, and we'll be encouraging you to support Triple R. We need it as much as ever, which will be great if you could do that. Um, but until then, have a fantastic Sunday. Remember, science is everywhere, and we will chat again in just over a week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Go-Go, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Go-Go's Twitter account or Facebook page.